his brother, Timothy Groover, coming to you with another edition of the Word of the King. Ecclesiastes chapter 8 verse 4 says, Where the word of the king is, there is power. And who may say unto him, What doest thou? Today on the word of the king, in honor of the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, I'm going to be considering the Reformation in Germany and the work that God did through this sinner saved by grace known as Martin Luther. Before we go get started with that, just open up here now in a word of prayer. Father, in Jesus' name, I come to you now, Lord God, and I just want to lift this time up now to you, dear Lord God. Let's consider the Reformation in Germany. And again, Lord God, I want to give you thanks for the work you all, in that man, Martin Luther, in tearing down the strongholds of Rome in his day, even as you wrought your salvation in him, I want to thank you, dear Lord God, for the uh, translating of the scriptures, dear Lord God, into the common tongue, to the languages of the people. Not just in Luther's day, but to this very day, to this very day, Lord God. I want to thank you for all that you have wrought as a result of your working in and through Martin Luther. And may the listeners, I pray now, Lord God, who hear this, may they be blessed. May they be blessed as they hear about the Reformation in Germany. In Jesus' name. Uh, again, uh, reading from... Miller's Church History, written by Andrew Miller, chapter 33, The Reformation in Germany. I read, the exclusive dominion of the Latin or Roman Church was now drawing to a close since the pontificate of Gregory the Great Again, if I could just interject, listener, pontificate is another uh, reference to the position of being Pope. Since the pontificate of Gregory the Great, or for nearly a thousand years, she had reigned supreme. But the oppressed Tuatin was now raising the arm of rebellion against the tyranny of the Roman. The warfare ended in a great secession of the Tuatins, and wresting from the papacy a large portion of her dominions, and in the breaking up of Christendom, like the ship in which Paul sailed to Rome. Uh, again, if interject again, uh, listener, the thousand years, those nearly thousand years that uh, Andrew Miller writes of in this book, uh, those nearly thousand years are commonly referred to as the Dark Ages. Continuing on, it has been our desire to present to the reader a fair view of the real character and ways of the Church of Rome during the long period of her dominion, and he must judge whether the history warrants our interpretation of the epistle to Thyatira. Our own convictions are a thousandfold deeper at the close than they were at the commencement of the history, that we have given a true interpretation and made a just application of the words of the Lord to the church in Thyatira, 
We have only him to serve and him to please in writing this history. For no one else would we have waited through these thousand years. The amount that we write bears little proportion to the amount that must be read in order to be satisfied with the truthfulness of what is written. Besides, a very large proportion of papal history is wholly unfit for our pages or to come before the eye of civilized people, far less the eye of the Christian. Her adulteries and abominations are better left on the page that was written in a ruder age, as they will surely be consigned to a place peculiarly dark in the regions of hell. Real quickly, dear listener, when Andrew Murray speaks of uh, the words of the Lord to the church of Thyatira, and there having been made a just application, let me just make a comment on that real quick, just to give you some understanding as to what he's referring to. Uh, Revelation. Chapter 2, starting in verse 18. And unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. Verse 19. And of thy works, and charity, and service, and faith, and thy patience, and thy works, and the last be more than the first. Verse 20. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth, calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. Verse 21. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Verse 22. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that committed adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repented their deeds. So what Andrew Miller is referring to, in the context of making a just application of the words of the Lord to the church in Thyatira, in the context of the Roman Catholic Church and the Roman Papacy, again, he's referring to the woman, Jezebel, and how the Roman Catholic Church and the Roman Catholic Papacy uh, operates in the same spirit as the spirit of Jezebel towards uh, the one true God and uh, one true church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the very bride of Christ, made up of people from every kindred, every tribe, and every tongue. Continuing on. For nearly 300 years, by means of schools, new translations, versions, printing presses, and the intolerance of the church, the Lord had been preparing the way for the accomplishment of his purpose. And, this being done, Phoebus' instrument was sufficient to bring all these agencies into full action. When the train is properly laid, an accidental spark may cause the explosion. To effect great results by small means is the way of divine providence, that the power may be seen to be of God and not of men. An occasion was furnished, and Luther was the prepared instrument to reap the glorious harvest of the Great Reformation. But much labor was bestowed on the field by many noble hearts and hands which were not privileged to gather its fruits at least in this world, these men have been the agents. Luther was the instrument. During these thousand years, we have been chiefly engaged with popery and the witnesses for Christ. Now it must be popery and Protestantism. But if the reader would rightly understand the difference between the two, he must carefully consider what popery was down to the time of Luther's appearance. Uh, when Andrew Miller, if I may interject, reader, Listener, when Andrew Miller makes reference 
Two, uh, much labor being bestowed on the field by many noble hearts and hands which were not privileged to gather its fruits. He is speaking of the lights, of the Paulicians, the Albigenses, the Anabaptists, and so on, that preceded uh, the Reformation and suffered greatly uh, throughout the Dark Ages. Continuing on, Popery and mankind, comparatively few in our peaceful times, have any idea of the real nature of the comprehensive grasp of Popery. During the long period of the Middle Ages, it was fully developed, but its nature remains unchanged until the present hour. Middle Ages, uh, again, is another reference for the Dark Ages. The Dark Ages are also known as the Middle Ages. Continuing, times and circumstances have changed, not popery. The clergy, including the monks and friars, were a distinct class and stood entirely apart from the rest of mankind. A broad, deep, impassable line separated the two communities, the clergy and the laity. The lives, the laws, the property, the rights... And the social duties of the one were not only different from those of the other, but often antagonistic. Uh, just for your information, dear listener, uh, when there is this, as Andrew Mil uh, Miller refers to it, a broad, deep, impassable line separated uh, between the two communities, the clergy and the laity, uh, in the book of Revelation, this is spoken of as uh, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans which thing the Lord Jesus Christ hates. It's the exalting of the clergy above the laity. Continuing on. Education, such as it was, had become the exclusive privilege of the clergy. Whoever had any desire for knowledge could neither obtain nor employ it, but in connection with the churchmen or the monastery. The younger sons of... The nobility, the younger sons of the nobility, and even of royalty, as the church became wealthy and powerful, joined the clergy, the clerical community. By this means, the most famous names in the land were found among the clergy, and the church and state were thus welded together. The universities, the schools, the whole domains of the human intellect were in their possession. The other great divisions of mankind the laity were kept in utter darkness and ignorance, and woe betide the man who would venture to point out some new road to intelligence, freedom, and power. The faintest glimmer of light was instantly extinguished, and the discovery denounced as magical and forbidden. Uh, real quickly, if I can interject real quick here, uh, dear listener. Uh, one of the ways that you see uh, the hand of Rome at work uh, today, you know, when you consider the faintest glimmer of light being instantly extinguished and the discovery denounced as magical and forbidden, uh, certain means of healing things, uh, be it cancer and other uh, physical uh, ailments, uh, when there is any discovery whatsoever of any natural means of treating such um, ailments or infirmities, uh, immediately, immediately, uh, there is pressure to have uh, those 
things suppressed and not getting out for the benefit of the people. Continuing on, the priests alone could read, write, draw up state papers or treaties and frame laws. From the sacredness of their character and their intellectual superiority, they were admitted to the courts and the councils of kings. They were the negotiators and the ambassadors of sovereigns. But royal secrets and compacts were not all they knew. The professional laid open the whole heart of every one, from the highest to the lowest, before the eye of the priesthood. No act was beyond their cognizance. Hardly any thought or intention was secret. There might be smothered murmurs at the avarice, pride, and licentiousness of the priest. Still, he was a priest, a bishop, a pope. His sacraments lost not their efficacy. His verdict of condemnation or absolution was equally valid. Those who openly doubted the power of the clergy in such matters were heretics, outcasts, prescribed, only fit fuel for the flames both now and evermore. The Pope, as was universally believed, combined in his own person all the attributes of supreme power in matters of religion and of government. The power of emperors and kings was derived, his was original. He was armed with divine authority to depose monarchs, to absolve subjects from their allegiance and from every other obligation, and if needful to dissolve all the bonds of society. But above all, he was empowered to maintain the integrity of the faith as transmitted to him from his predecessors or defined by himself as head of the church, to repress dissent in every shape, to persecute, to extermination, all who ventured to dispute this supreme prerogative, as rebels and traitors, to God and his church, at any time to call upon the secular government without compensation, to lavish life and money, labor and feeling, to enable him to maintain the integrity of the spiritual empire. And again, dear listener, if I, would, if I could interject, Revelation 17, verse 1 and 2. And there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, and I will shew unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Verse 3. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Again, the Pope of Rome, that beast upon which the woman, Roman Catholic Church, rides. The state of the church, continuing on, the state of the church at the beginning of the 16th century, such as we have now prescribed was the unlimited power of the Romish priesthood, at the beginning of this century, no man was independent of the priest. He was lord of the human conscience. His power was absolute both over body and soul, over time and eternity. None could afford to incur his displeasure or to lie under his censor. Excommunication cut the man off, whatever his rank or station, from the church, beyond whose pale there was no possibility of salvation. It is not... A little remarkable that just at this time, no danger seemed to threaten this towering, monstrous system of iniquity. From the Vatican down to the smallest congregation, the sovereignty and tranquility of the Church appeared to be completely secured. The various heresies and commotions which had disturbed her for centuries had been suppressed by fire and sword. 
The complaints and petitions of her most faithful children had been rejected with insolent impunity, and the warnings of her sincerest friends were neglected or despised. Wherever now the Waldenses, the Albigenses, the Bighearts, the Lollards, the Bohemians, and the various sectaries, they had been silenced or extinguished by papal management. True, there were many private murmurs against the injustice, fraud, violence, and tyranny of the court of Rome, also against the crimes, ignorance, and licentiousness of her whole priesthood. But the pontiffs had grown accustomed to these murmurings and could either conciliate with their favors or defy with their censors, as best suited their policy. We can imagine the false woman, according to the language of St. John, surveying with exultation the pillars and the borks of her strength. For she saith in her heart, I sit a queen and am no widow, and shall see no sorrow. She heeded not the voice that had said, Her sins have reached unto heaven, and God hath remembered her iniquities. God's time was come for at least a partial fulfillment of this prophecy. The word of arrest had gone forth. Just when she thought everything was safe and settled forever, the end of her uncontrolled domination was at hand. But how was this to be accomplished? A reformation of the church and its head and members had been the general cry for ages. But all such demands and complaints she set at defiance. What now was to be done? Must some mighty angel come down from heaven to overthrow this despotism of Rome and break the yoke of popery which has so long bound in fetters and bodies and souls of men? No, such agencies were not required and not used that God may be glorified. That which the most powerful sovereigns and their armed legions utterly failed to effect, God fully and gloriously accomplished by an obscure monk in Saxony single-handed. This was Martin Luther of Esselpen. He was the voice of God that woke Europe for this great work and called the laborers into the field. But if we would form a just estimate of God's chief instrument in this mighty work and of the grace that qualified him, we must glance at what is important in the early life of the great reformer. De Agni, in his love of Luther, speaks of him as having experienced in his own soul the different phases of the Reformation before they were accomplished in the world, and exhorts his reader to study his life before he proceeds to the events that changed the face of Christendom. The first period of Luther's life. Martin Luther was descended from a poor but virtuous family, which had long dwelt in the domains of the Counts of Mansfield in Thuringia. I am the son of a peasant, he used to say. My father, my grandfather, and my great-grandfather were honest peasants. His father, John Luther, soon after his marriage, removed to Esteban in Saxony. There Luther was born November 10, 1483. It was on St. Martin's Eve. The following day he was christened by the name of Martin in honor of the saint on whose festival he was born. His father was an upright and industrious man, frank in his manner, but disposed to carry the firmness of his character even to obstinacy. He was fond of reading and improved his naturally strong understanding by studying such books as came within his reach. His wife Margaret was a humble, prayerful, pious woman looked up to by her neighbors as a pattern of virtue. 
The following summer, or when Martin was about six months old, the family removed back to Mansfield, where they endured great poverty. My father was a woodcutter, says Luther, and my mother has often carried the wood on her back that she might procure the means of bringing up her children. But the Lord was not unmindful of these honest labors and raised them above such drudgery in due time. John became connected with the iron mines at Mansfield, and by his habits of industry and the general respect he acquired by his good sense, he was brought into comparatively easy circumstances. He was chosen a member of the town council, and by the superior character of his mind, he easily found his way to the best society in the district. The father's fondest ambition was to make his eldest son a scholar, but he did not forget his early domestic education. As soon as he was old enough to receive instruction, his pious parents spoke to him about the Lord Jesus and prayed with him by his bedside. Martin was sent very young to school. His first instructor was George Emilius, the schoolmaster of the place. There he was taught the Catechism, the Commandments, the Creed, the Lord's Prayer, and the rudiments of Latin. But according to the manners of the age, poor little Martin acquired his first religious education through many and severe floggings. From an early age, he was trained in the school of poverty, hardship, and suffering for a future life of warfare. On one occasion, as he himself relates, he was flogged by the unsparing Emilius 15 times in the same day. His treatment at home was not more merciful. His father administered with conscientious rigor, says one of his biographers, what was long considered as the only instrument of moral or intellectual cultivation, and even his mother engaged in the system with so much zeal as to draw blood by her chastisements. Martin's warm and resolute temper gave frequent occasions for punishment on this principle. My parents, he said, in afterlife, treated me harshly so that I became very timid. My mother one day chastised me so severely about a nut that the blood came, but they sincerely thought they were doing right. The second period of Luther's life. At the age of 14, Martin had learned all that could be taught in Mansfeld, and having given some promise of proficiency, his father sent him to the Franciscan school at Magdeburg. But the severity of Luther's education did not cease when he left his father's house in the hard discipline of Emilius. He found himself at Magdeburg in the midst of strangers, without friends, without means, and without food enough to live upon. His spirit was crushed. He trembled in the presence of his masters and had to employ the intervals of study in begging bread. When, with his young companions, he went at Christmas through the neighboring villages singing carols, all were so timid by reason of the menaces and tyranny with which teachers were then accustomed to rule over their pupils that they ran away from a kind peasant who came out with some food for them. Frightened at the sound of a loud voice calling, Boys, where are you? They fled. It was only his repeated calls and assurances that brought them back to partake of his bounty. Here Luther remained about a year, but his difficulty in finding food was so great that, with the consent of his parents, he left and went to Eisenach, which contained a good school where also his mother's relations resided. But his kindred who dwelt there either neglected him or were unable to help him. So hard were his circumstances that it seemed likely he would have to leave. But again, pinched by hunger, 
We tried singing from door to door for a morsel of bread. This custom is still preserved in many German cities, and in some places the choral boys are expected to solicit contributions in aid of the funds of the institution. Such a mode of earning his bread was most humiliating to the mind of Luther. The frequent repulses he met with well nigh broke his spirit. He shed many tears in secret and indulged anxious thoughts about the future. Must I abandon all my fond hopes of education, of improvement, of advancing? Must I go back to Mansfield and be shut up in the mines forever? Such questions have become present realities to the young student. But there was one who was watching over him, though he, as yet he knew him not, and who had destined him to work in other mines than those at Mansfield. A father's hand was directing and weighing every trial. The enemy could not add a grain to their weight beyond the divine measure. He was training his future servant in the school of adversity, and when he had learnt his lesson, the reward would come. The crisis in his history was at hand. The Lord's time for relief had arrived. If I can interject here, dear listener. Jesus said, St. John 6, 44, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. What we're reading about right now is the hand of God and his drawing that sinner Martin Luther unto himself to be justified by faith. As it says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The word of God makes it clear. For all of sin and come short of the glory of God, but the fearful and the unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all Liars shall their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Jesus said, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Therefore repent ye, you who are not saved, repent ye and believe the gospel. For there is a way which seemeth right unto a man, and there are the ways of death. Repent ye and believe the gospel, how that Christ died for your sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. And believe on him, trust in him alone, to save you today. From the wages of your sin, death, hell, and a lake of fire. Continuing on, got time here for at least one more section. Luther and the pious Ursula. One day as Luther was returning from his labors, greatly disappointed and disheartened, having sung before three successive houses unrewarded. A door suddenly opened, a woman appeared on the threshold who invited him to come in and relieve his wants. This was the kind-hearted Ursula, the wife of Conrad Cottle. She had noticed him before and had been struck with the sweetness of his voice and the seriousness of his expression. Conrad approved of his wife's benevolence, and they agreed that he should remain with them as an adopted son. Relieved from his temporal cares and enjoying the many privileges of a Christian family, the naturally fine mind of Luther awoke to new sympathies, new joys, new hopes, to a new and happy existence. God in mercy had opened the hearts and the home of the good Ursula and her husband for the spirit-broken youth. We need scarcely add that their love was engraven on the heart of Luther and recorded in heaven to be rewarded forever. To his literary and scientific studies, which he now pursued with fresh vigor, he added the charms of music, 
In gratitude to his adopted mother, he learned in his hours of recreation to play on the flute and the lute and to sing to the latter, for she was passionately fond of the melody of his voice as an accompaniment to the lute. Thus began that love of music which continued even to old age and was often a solace to him in times of trouble and temptation. He composed tunes for many songs and also the words as well as the airs of some very beautiful hymns. One of those hymns, as I would interject, dear listener, one of those hymns, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Continuing on, in the genial atmosphere of the Cotta family, it was only natural that the character of Luther should undergo a great change. His anxieties were removed, his timidity disappeared, his mind was peaceful, his ways were cheerful and happy, and he, his remarkable talents made him the special favorite at the Franciscan school. Thus he spent four happy years. He surpassed all his fellows, says Melanchthon, in eloquence and compositions both in prose and verse. Trebonius, the superior of the convent and the head of the college, always raised his cap to salute the pupils when he entered the schoolroom. His colleagues, not adopting the same custom, expressed their surprise at his condescension. There are among these boys, he replied, some whom God will one day make burgomasters, chancellors, doctors, and magistrates, although you do not yet see them with the badges of their dignity. It is right that you should treat them with respect. Youthful Luther was present and no doubt often remembered the words of his esteemed teacher. Encouraged by his early triumphs at Eisnick and feeling that his course of study was secured, he thirsted for more extensive means of intellectual advancement and distinction. A university education was his great desire. His father, whose circumstances were improved, agreed to this, but wished him to study the law. This has been another edition of The Word of the King. We'll continue next time, part two of the German Reformation, Martin Luther and God. Next time, God bless you and yours.